Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz, and let me first start by saying I'm truly sorry for starting 20 minutes late today. There were circumstances beyond my control, but I am here. I apologize for the delay. Thank you guys for being patient, hanging out in the rooms. I want to thank our moderators for keeping the conversation going. So let me go ahead and welcome Andrew Valentine on Instagram. Welcome, Andrew. It's good to see you in the rooms. Want to welcome Cece Wheezy, Singer Chick. Khaleesi is joining us. And Lindsay is also with us, as is Lisa on Facebook. So I hope everyone's having a good evening, good morning, depending on where in the world you are. If you are joining us for the first time, and want more information about our show, please visit our website, deadtalklive.com. Also visit any of our five streaming platforms, which include YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. If you are on YouTube right now, it'd be greatly appreciated if you hit the thumbs up button on this broadcast. And if you're not subscribed to us on YouTube, just go there, look us up, Dead Talk Live. And feel free to go ahead and subscribe. Thank you, Lindsay. I'm doing well. Hope you're doing well, too. Uh, Khaleesi writes, haven't read those. You guys are talking about books. Uh, Khaleesi's talking about reading the Game of Thrones books. You know, those Game of Thrones books is what prevented me and my wife from watching the TV show when it was airing live on HBO. I haven't read the books. She read the books. Uh, so I was kind of on her, let's start watching this thing, but because of her having read the books and knowing how graphic and violent they were, she did not, uh, care too much about starting a TV show. It wasn't until several months after the series finale aired that we finally, finally sat our butts down and binge watched from the beginning to the end, the entire uh game of thrones series and i am damn glad we did because it was just freaking amazing <laughs> welcome to uh sylviana sorry sylvia on uh, instagram mary 61 mom is with us and is waving at us welcome mary 61 mom so let's get started with uh the news okay uh and the first item up for today is a yours truly. That's right. I wrote this piece. In fact, I posted it shortly before we went live on the uh, on the show tonight. As we all know, on February 11th, CBS is premiering their brand new show called Clarice about Clarice Starling from Silence of the Lambs. As you can see in that picture, Michael Cudlitz, uh, Abraham from The Walking Dead, is also appearing on that show, as well as a lot of other people. And the reason why I wrote this article is in regards to, there was some confusion uh, when the show was first starting to be teased by CBS as exactly what the timeline is in relation to the movie Silence of the Lambs. Was the show going to take place after Silence of the Lambs? 
Was it going to take place after the sequel, Hannibal? When exactly does this show uh, take place? They did recently answer that question. The year uh, that this show is going to be taking place in is 1993. So you will not be seeing any kind of smartphones on the show Clarice. No internet. None of that. Okay? It takes place one year after the incident at Silence of the Lambs with... uh, the killer Buffalo Bill, and of course, Hannibal Lecter. And we've got a whole article that I wrote about it. Here is Rebecca Breeds. Rebecca is going to be playing the lead, Clarice Starling. It's, like I said, it's going to be starring two Walking Dead alumni. Of course, Michael Cudlitz, who played Abraham, and Jane Atkinson, who played Georgie. We only saw Georgie for maybe one or two episodes, but was mentioned a lot in regards to Maggie. And as we all know, Maggie left with Georgie. Uh, What's happened with Georgie? We don't know. She's not coming back to The Walking Dead. Uh, Is she alive? Are we going to find out through Maggie that Georgie died uh, somewhere along the way? They split up. Who the hell knows? It's also going to be starring uh, a lot of other people like Luca D'Olivera from SEAL Team, Devin Tyler, The Purge, Cal Penn from House and Designated Survivor. I love Cal Penn. Nick uh, Sandow from Orange is the New Black. A newcomer, Maya McNair. Literally, when I say newcomer, this is Maya McNair's first professional uh, appearance on a TV show, movie, whatever you want to, you know, call it. This is it. This is her debut. And I'm really psyched about this show. Michael Cudlitz is going to be coming back to our show here at Dead Talk Live to promote Clarice, hopefully sometime soon. It might be before the premiere. It might be a little bit afterwards. And I see that our... uh, Team member Summer is joining us, who she just shared with us that she's uh, sick at the moment, and we're all wishing you well, Summer, and hope you get back to feeling well pretty soon, but it's good that to have you back on the broadcast. We miss seeing you here on the broadcast. I know you're always with us because you're the one that lights up the screen with those love hearts. <laughs> So it's good to have you with us, Summer, and I hope you feel better real soon. So that's the scoop on Clarice. You can read the full article that I wrote on deadtalknews.com, as well as all of our other articles. (laughs) Uh, J.D. Smith writes, Biz, you are one consistent SOB. Uh, Yeah, 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 you know, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've been called that and a lot of other things as well. <laughs> but deep down, behind all the layers, you know, I'm a lovable guy. I really am. Actually, to tell you the truth, for the people that really get to know me, like you guys, you guys know me. I don't hold anything back. I don't put any kind of act on for this show. You're either going to love me or hate me. 
there you will definitely not be indifferent to me so you're either going to love me or hate me and there are plenty of people that hate me but i think there are a few more that love me that more than hate me so i think that's a good thing sammy is with us saying viz i hope you're doing well i am jd smith writes thanks for these streams hey this is what i do it for man i stay up all night preparing just for this one hour to come here and talk and share with you guys i love it this is my favorite time of the day so check this out 10 most ingenious special effects in horror movie history now this ought to be interesting because we have seen some pretty damn good special effects uh going back through the decades and i have a lot more respect for the special effects that we saw back in the 80s and 90s before cgi became so prevalent in almost every single movie that we see today when all those special effects had to be done by hand by true artists like rick baker tom savini and so on so this article says that ripping human beings limb from limb is no short order it's messy expensive and carries a hefty prison sentence <laughs> so in the pursuit of visceral realism in horror movies you can definitely expect the first two but don't necessarily have to indulge in the third special effects experts ah haven't heard that term before effects experts have been filming decapitations and dismemberments since the birth of horror over 100 years ago. Since the late 90s, however, computer-generated imagery has increased in use exponentially. It's used everywhere. It's not just grown. It's pretty much used in every movie you see. The cost of it has come down. Hell, I'm using CGI for this broadcast right behind me. Now, CGI can be very effective, but human eyes have a unique ability to detect fakery, hence the uncanny valley phenomenon. If you're looking for realistic horror and the pixels just can't cut it, you hire the B-movie team formed from George's Mel, sorry, I'm going to butcher this. Melies, Tom Savini, who I mentioned, Chris Wallace, Rick Baker, who I also mentioned, and of course, Rob Botton. These guys have been bathing in red corn syrup, latex rubber, and miniature explosives since birth, seamlessly blending practical effects in camera has elevated some horrors from the mediocre to the magnificent and rick baker for those of you that don't know i've said this quite a bit this week he is the one that did that amazing transition from man to werewolf in american werewolf in london Seth brundle's human fly hybrid took body horror to a new level in animatronic ingenuity gave us the best werewolf transitions ever seen on film. With those and many more, here are some of the most effective and stomach-churning horror effects imaginable. Oh, I gotta see this list. So let's see what they have. 
Tina's Death, A Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984. Do you guys remember by looking at this picture, Tina's Death? She got dragged from her bed up the wall onto the ceiling while Freddy Krueger is hacking her to pieces. That was pretty gruesome. Wes Craven's 1984 Nightmare Slasher Classic has earned its place in the Horror Movie Hall of Fame, but there is a few who could deny that some of the effects have not aged well. The sequence in Tina's Dream where Freddy has elongated arms, for example, looks pretty ridiculous to a CGI generation. The final shot of Nancy's mom being pulled through a very small hole in the front door looks even worse. So why is this film on the list? You might think it's for the now legendary scene where Johnny Depp is liquefied in a bed and sprayed into the ceiling, but nope, that scene was an afterthought. Brilliant as it is, the rotating room used for the effect that was actually designed for Tina's death scene is a mere 13 minutes to film. Uh, wow, I thought that would it would have been a lot longer than just 13 minutes. Inspired by Fred Astaire dancing on the ceiling in Royal Wedding, the set furniture was nailed down, actor Amanda Weiss was given her marks, and the cameras rolled. It's a stunning effect, and given the intensity of the performance, it remains one of the most shocking sequences in a movie. And yeah, the whole rotating room is one thing. The the amount of blood in that scene. Oh my God. If it's been a while since you watched it, just go back and rewatch that scene again. It's worth rewatching. Let's see. Next on the list, The Evil Dead, the remake, 2013, The Severed Arm. 70,000 gallons of fake blood with 50,000 in the last sequence alone. Holy cow. Can you guys, I mean, just try to visualize what 70,000 gallons of blood looks like? How big? I mean, where do you store that stuff? Anyway, that's a lot of fake blood. Now, this 2013 remake deserves its place here precisely because of its old-school approach, something all too rare in contemporary horror. Taking an entirely in-camera approach, Evil Dead is unique amongst its modern peers as most directors tend to fall back on CGI as it's cheaper and faster. So maybe I'm being corrected here. Maybe there are some uh, filmmakers out there that still do it the old school way. No such corner cutting here. According to director Fede Alvarez, there is virtually no computer graphics used in the film except those used as a blending tool, Christopher Nolan style. Amongst the numerous examples of graphic body horror, highlights include Mia slicing her tongue straight down the middle with a box cutter, and Eric being used as a pincushion 
The poor guy is stabbed repeatedly in the face and eye with a hypodermic needle. He's then pierced multiple times with a nail gun and still survives until later. But damn, that must be painful. The absolute gnarliest effect, though, has to go to Natalie, who, in an homage to Evil Dead 2, decides to sever her infected left arm with an electric carving knife. As the blade saws through her flesh, she sprayed with claret, but it doesn't stop there. David watches in horror as her arm, now hanging off by a flap of the skin, drops to the floor. Horrifically ingenious and in an effective that deserves an accolade. There aren't that many modern horrors that display this level of commitment. I'm stuck on that 70,000 gallons of blood. I still want to know where you store that crap. <laughs> anyway, next on the list, we just talked about this, the transition in American Werewolf in London. We did a whole 5-10 minute bit about this several episodes ago. I mean, awesome. Awesome. Rick Baker at his finest. Next on the list... Frank's Rebirth, Hellraiser. Oh, man, Hellraiser, who, which was written by the awesome Clive Barker, also did the movie. Uh, like I said, I met Clive Barker back in the early 90s. You know, you meet the guy, he looks like a completely normal guy. He's British, but to hear him speak is one of the most fascinating experience you can experiences you will ever have. You, when he talks and he shares what goes through his thought process when he is creating such works as Hellraiser, Nightbreed, and so on, you hear just how twisted uh, of an imagination he has, which makes him so, so damn good. If you've ever seen Hellraiser, and why not, here it is in a nutshell, the curious Frank Cotton comes into possession of a mysterious puzzle box while traveling in North Africa. When unlocked, Frank is torn limb from limb by the Cenobites, a group of well-dressed sadomasochists straight from hell. Meanwhile, his naive brother Larry and wife Julia, Frank's secret lover, move into Frank's old house and it's, it's not long before a drop of Larry's blood has begun to resurrect him. The skinless Frank demands that Julia must bring him more blood if they are to return him to full strength. Basically, every time they kill somebody, he starts to become whole again. Uh, Frank's resurrection scene has earned a well reputation as another of the best special effects shots in modern horror, considering that the entire movie was shot in seven weeks on a budget of $900,000 by Clive Barker, who himself admitted he didn't know the difference between different lenses and a plate of spaghetti while shooting the film, and that makes it even more damn impressive. 
Uh, that's a freaky movie. I mean, you got to watch Hellraiser if you haven't. Uh, J.D. Smith writes, Frank Cotton, everyone's favorite uncle. Rick Grimes is with us on YouTube. Hellraiser was amazing. It got sillier as the sequels went on. And then once they replaced Doug Bradley as Pinhead, it totally lost its entire appeal. No, I can't see anybody else playing Pinhead be besides Doug Bradley, who I've also met. And he's just, he's amazing. So number six on the list is Zombies versus Lawn, sorry, Lawnmower, Brain Dead, the movie Brain Dead, nineteen ninety two. Little did we know that an unknown filmmaker by the name of Peter Jackson would make the jump from a modestly budgeted three million dollar horror flick to the multi Oscar winning Lord of the Rings, the first installment of which was shot for 93 million bucks that same leap of faith from new line cinema uh brains dead is no small sorry brain dead is in no way helped jackson become one of the world's most celebrated director so why the appeal combing soap opera sorry combining soap opera elements with classic zombie movie shtick Brain Dead is as funny as it is stomach churning. The plot is appropriately simple when Lionel's mom is bitten by a Sumatran rat monkey while visiting the local zoo. Little does he know that she will become a member of the undead, spawning a small legion of zombies, including an undead baby culminating in a party that pits an army of the undead against Lionel, armed only with a lawnmower. Sounds pretty silly, right? But that was Peter Jackson, the guy who went on to direct Lord of the Rings. So it's really funny to find out where some of these great directors, even actors, uh, got their starts. Everyone has to get their start somewhere. Number five on the list, another werewolf transformation in the movie The Company of Wolves, 1984. Again, 1984 was a good year. A lot of stuff happened in 1984. Continuing the trend of werewolf movies in the early 80s, The Company of Wolves is a different beast altogether. Both gothic and surreal, based on Angela Carter's novella and directed by Neil Jordan. The werewolf transformation sequence in this film are exceptional and showcase the work of both production designer Anton First, who would win an Oscar five years later for Batman, and Christopher Tucker, the special effects makeup artist. The Company of Wolves takes the Little Red Riding Hood fairy tale and reframes it as a metaphor for adolescence, sexual awakening, and the dangers of men whose eyebrows meet in the middle. Expanding on Carter's feminist uh, reimagining of cautionary childhood tales, 
first published in the Bloody Chamber. Here, the werewolf is graphically presented on screen with two transformation scenes bookending the film. And I gotta admit, I've never seen this one. Uh, that, to me, if you guys are looking at the picture, looks like a very sick, hairless dog. <laughs> uh, that's what that looks like to me. Um, anyway, number four, The Shunting Society, 1989. If you've never seen Society, then this will be a hard sell. Society, like all good horror, has something to say well about society. That it features some of the most graphic, bizarre, nausea-inducing, downright disgusting scenes of human interaction ever put on film. Slightly distracts from the message director Brian Yuzna is attempting to convey. This is sick stuff but society deserves its entry here purely for the last act of the movie, colloquially known as The Shunting. Raised in wealthy Beverly Hills society, Bill Whitney uh, believes that something is not quite right with his family. So far, so normal, but when he gets his hands on a recording of his parents and friends, engaged in some form of sinister orgy, he begins to suspect that he might just be right. Little does he know that his affluent parents and their friends are indeed not entirely human after all. That's something to find out. The orgy Bill heard on the tape and attends in the last part of the film is simply known as the Shunting, a mass gathering of aliens who have the ability to distort and meld their bodies with others, feeding from humans in the process. Now, there's a concept, right? That's a unique concept that we haven't seen uh, done again since this movie. J.D. writes, sorry, I figured this list was going to get people talking, but anyone who rates... The excellent company of the wolves transformation over Barker's werewolf in London makeup should not be writing these kind of articles. You make a damn good point there, JD. That's a good point. Let's see. Uh, some of these movies, uh, yeah, they, they really dug deep into a jar to find them. All right. Alien, 1979. The chestbuster scene. When we first see baby alien... Coming out of John Hurt. Uh, it's a classic scene. Classic. This special effects is, a, is as iconic as they come. Aped, copied, parodied, and homaged, but never matched. Those lucky enough to have seen Alien Blind, that is to say without prior warning of the alien's introduction, you're the lucky ones. For sheer originality... The chestburster sequence is utterly unique. For sheer first-time shock factor, it's really never been matched. Director Ridley Scott wisely and bravely decided to shoot the sequence under bright light 
attempting to get the feel and look of an operating table. Actor John Hurt was only partially visible, his torso hidden beneath the table with the fake chest containing the chestburster prop, large quantities of fake blood, and sufficient squibs. Small explosive charges generally used for creating bullet entry and exit wounds in movies. To blow a hole in Hertz t-shirt, which had been finely sliced with a razor. The effect is stunning, terrifying, graphic, and realistic enough to convince the audience that an alien life form has just pushed its way through Hertz ribcage. And I want you guys to be honest with me. How many of you have never seen the original Alien? Because, uh, I mean, you know about this scene. It's been talked about. You've probably seen clips of it on YouTube. It's hard to go through the internet life today without watching even just bits and parts of this scene. Uh, Summer has never seen Alien. Ah, Summer. Uh, Sigourney Weaver. Wow. I mean, it's... We did an episode a while ago about horror alien movies, and this has to be probably the best one. Uh, It is scary as hell. Now, I like the sequel as well. Uh, The first one is called Alien. The sequel is called Aliens, plural. Uh, But the sequel is not so much uh, scary as it is an action-packed thriller action flick. A lot of action. Uh, It is scary just with the sheer amount of aliens that they have to deal with. In the first movie, it's just one. Just one. Uh, But the second movie, it was, I liked it. I really, really liked it. Number two on the list is The Thing. And almost every horror movie list that we have gone through recently this movie's on the list. And it's on the list for a great reason. Because it's an amazing movie. We actually talked about it on yesterday's show. And before I even started reading the article, I said it was a movie well ahead of its time. And as we read the article, they they said the exact same thing. So we're not going to spend too much time on this. The Thing, 1982... Starring Kurt Russell. Must see if you have not seen it. It's a classic. Let's see what's number one on the list. Oh, The Fly. 1986. The Transformation of Seth Brundle. Ooh, that was great. Be afraid. Be very afraid. The David Cronenberg 1987 remake of the Vincent Price classic sci-fi horror movie certainly lives up to the tagline. It's a disturbing and graphic film, even by today's standards. In a 1987 interview, Price revealed that Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum was the star, sent him a letter hoping for his approval. Price replied saying, I thought it was wonderful right up to a certain point. 
It went a little too far. An understatement, perhaps, as Seth Brundle, played by Goldblum, begins to transform his own DNA now mixed with a fly in an experiment gone awry, Cronenberg takes a dual approach to the metamorphosis physical, physically and mentally, culminating in a tragic and terrifying story. To convey the horror of Brundle's physical evolution, special effects master Chris Wallace was hired and did not disappoint, with credits including Toit's melting face from Raiders of the Lost Ark and the creature design from Gremlins, Wallace created what was to become the major pitch of the film. The original approach was a more simple transformation from human to fly, yet Cronenberg wanted to visualize something more like the spread of cancer or old age. The finished result was a gruesome, monstrous um, um, sorry, amalgamation of the two, not switched, but combined. For those of you who have never watched The Fly, uh, the transformation doesn't happen like in American Werewolf in London, where he's sitting in a chair reading a book, one minute, and then the next minute, he starts to turn into a werewolf. Uh, the transformation of uh, Jeff Goldblum's character in the movie The Fly happens very slowly uh, after that experiment that goes bad. He doesn't realize that it went bad right away. He thought the experiment was a success. He was able to teleport himself from pod A to pod B. But he started changing slowly at first, physically. He Then it went through the whole transformation to the very end. The man literally turns into a human-sized fly. Um, and I'm not going to spoil it anymore beyond that. It's a great, great movie. Scary, gory, great story. Definitely won't be disappointed. CC writes, yep, it's just disgusting. Who wants to be a fly they eat? Lindsay Sparks writes, I thought the thing would be number one on the list, but I agree with the number one pick. Yeah, you could you could easily flop uh, number two with number one, put the thing as number one and put fly number two or the way they did it. I have no problem with either way. So anyway, let's see what else we have on tap. Looking at the time here, uh, I, I wanted to read this to you guys. The Walking Dead star Andrew Lincoln explains why he rejected action and horror roles. Uh, the Walking Dead star Andrew Lincoln has explained why he didn't appear in any other projects throughout the period that he was working on the AMC horror series. Lincoln starred as Rick Grimes in nine seasons of The Walking Dead, of course between 2010 and 2018, and didn't play any other characters during that time with the exception of reprising his Love Actually character Mark for a comic relief short called Red Nose Day Actually in 2017. And without reading further in this article, 
my guess as to why Andrew did not take on any other roles while he was playing Rick Grimes for those eight plus years, because we have heard from guest after guest on this show who worked with Andrew Lincoln on The Walking Dead on how dedicated he was to that role. He would never break character during the set, whether the cameras were rolling or not. He would always stay in the character of Rick Grimes right up until at night when he went to bed, which I hope he broke out of character at that point, or else he'd be sleeping with one eye open, waiting for walkers that did not really exist to come walking into his room. But anyway, that's my guess as to why he never took on any other roles. Speaking to Collider about his new movie, Penguin Bloom, the actor explained his family was a big reason why he made the decision not to take on any additional roles and opened up about why he was particularly keen to avoid starring in action and horror projects. I have a young family and the industry is littered with people that don't make it easy as a family. And I spent eight months away from them for a lot of their childhood. That's a long time. And, you know, a lot of people got upset when he left. But come on, can you imagine eight plus years where eight months out of the year you don't get to spend with your family? I totally understand why he wanted to break away from that. Uh, And it was becoming more unbearable. So basically, when I was home, I was playing catch up as a parent, as a husband, and as a father. And also, unfortunately, what you have to do is you have to change people's perceptions of what you're able to do as an actor. And so a lot of the scripts I was receiving were great scripts, but they were action and they were horror. And I just thought, you know what? I was waiting for the right story to chime And then this one came along, and I instantly loved it. I wanted to be a part of this beautiful story of the Bloom family. Penguin Bloom is certainly a departure from all those walkers. The family drama tells the story of photographer Cameron, his wife Sam, and their family as they try to adjust to Sam becoming paralyzed, falling following a fall and find solace in nursing an injured magpie chick back to health. The movie, which is based on Bradley, Trevor, Grieve, and Cameron Bloom's novel of the same name, has been picked up by Netflix in a number of territories, including the United Kingdom, and will begin streaming on January 27th. So if you guys want to see Andrew Lincoln in a new uh, uh, new movie on your screens, Penguin Bloom is coming out on Netflix on January 27th, which is just like, what, uh, five days away. Lincoln isn't done with The Walking Dead just yet, though, as he will be bringing Rick Grimes back to life in a movie trilogy. We don't know yet exactly what the movies will be about, 
But Walking Dead showrunner Angela Kang has hinted that we will get some more definitive answers about the whole A and B plot. I would hope so. <laughs> it would suck if we go through all the movies and never find out what the A and B are about. But that's not going to happen. We're actually starting to find out just a little bit as hints were being dropped in this past season's World Beyond. In those post credit scenes uh, after several episodes where we get to see the CRM doing their experiments and so on. So there he is, the man himself, Andrew Lincoln. Summer is watching, so since Summer was watching, of course, I had to do a story about Andrew Lincoln. She likes him. Uh, oh, close my window here. Hold on. Uh, I'm just keeping a close eye on the time. I want to talk about this one. Hulu, new horror thriller run will leave you breathless. This is not that new. I don't know why... They're posting this as a new movie in January, at the end of January. This movie has been out for a while. Yeah, I just want to reiterate, this is an amazing movie. It is available to stream on Hulu. If you're a fan of Sarah Paulson from American Horror Story, she is the star of this movie. Uh, I'm not going to give you any hints, not going to spoil it. I want to give you guys a chance to watch this movie. It is both... Uh, a psychological thriller. There's no real blood or gore. It's not a horror movie. It's a thriller, psychological, scary in that way. And those are the kind of roles where Sarah Paulson just thrives at as an actress. Because she is amazing. Welcome to Rebecca from the Philippines. Shouty is also on Instagram with us from the Philippines. Uh, welcome to all you from the Philippines, where it is Saturday morning for you guys. So thank you for tuning in. So uh, I want to, you know, I have some more news, but I want to get into today's topic. Uh, I When I was doing the, the, the title for today's topic, which is Creepy Items, I'm like, damn, that's pretty that's pretty vague, uh, but I don't know how to put it worded better, so I changed it to creepy horror items. I'm basically talking about horror movies that we watched where it's either A, a possessed object, or more often than not, a doll, uh, uh, or that clown from the movie Poltergeist. Uh, creepy items like that, that play a big theme and story to a lot of different horror movies out there. So I found some videos on YouTube uh, with top 10 lists, and I want to go through this first one. Uh, I don't know, if we're probably not going to have time to go through both of them, but let's go through this first one together. This is again from Watch Mojo. Watch Mojo, thank you. I know I've been using a lot of your videos recently you guys have some good content let's check this out anybody else see that welcome to watch mojo and today we're counting down our picks for the top 10 creepiest things found in the background of movie scenes jason there's something totally weird going on with rob and beth 
I'm serious. They're right outside. Hud, not now. Okay. I'll check it out. For this list, we'll be looking at various creepy things that can be found in the background of various movies, particularly thrillers or horror films. This can be unintentional inclusions that slipped by quality control and became movie legend, or scary things that were intentionally placed in the background for the purpose of subtle horror. There's a big spoiler alert in effect here. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to check out the full song at the link below. Number 10, Ghost Boy, Insidious. After the Lamberts move into a new home to escape this supernatural activity, Renee spots a little ghost boy through the window dancing to tiptoe through the tulips. It's a creepy sequence, and it establishes that the supernatural activity has followed them to their new house. But did you know that the ghost can actually be seen before Renee spots him? After Renee starts the record, the camera follows her through the house as she tidies up. As she's tossing clothes in the laundry hamper, you can see the boy standing just to her left and facing the wall. Whoa, I never picked that up. Why he was doing that, we have no idea, but it made our hearts freeze, we can tell you that. I never picked that up. Place. I'm not imagining it, I can feel it. It's like a sickness. Ever since we've moved in, everything's just gone wrong. Number nine, demon in the picture frame, Poltergeist. To watch Poltergeist is to discover a world of often disquieting behind the scenes insights. <gasps> this horror franchise has had influence for more than 30 years and can still be felt in pop culture today. One particularly horrific moment in the film occurs in the background in the scene just before the spirits wreak havoc on the house. A group of normal family photos sit behind Jobeth Williams as she innocently blow dries her hair, but after the clown attacks her son Robbie, a ghost-like face has taken over one of the pictures. Ah, uh, I know what you're talking about. Number eight, Toshio uh, in the did drawer. Did you guys see that? Juan, the grudge. Few villains can compare to the horrifying, pale, and wide-eyed Kayako Seiki. Seiki is the vengeful ghost that haunts the house in Nerima, and many of her scenes, like crawling down the staircase and hiding under the bedsheets, are now iconic. But there are also many subtle scares that are littered throughout. One of the best involves Toshio, also known as the little boy ghost. While getting some fresh air outside the nursing home, Saito starts playing peekaboo with no one in particular, much to the concern of Rika. When the camera cuts to the glass door, we get a very brief glimpse of Toshio standing next to Saito in the reflection. It's enough to send chills down your spine. Number seven, the approaching truck, Jeepers Creepers. Which, those bodies down there, that's what it likes to call it. It's house of pain. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I don't know if it's a demon or a devil, or just some hungry thing from some dark place in time. This monster movie received mediocre reviews from critics who mostly denounced the cliches and silly monster action. That said, most agreed that the film had a very encouraging start, and that's largely due to the brilliant opening sequence. 
As Trish and Derry drive home for spring break, they are tormented by an erratic driver in a rusty truck. That alone is scary enough, but what makes the sequence even more unsettling is the subtle way in which the truck approaches the protagonists. I wanted to cry, didn't know you you see it in the background there? It begins as an indistinct blur in the background before slowly growing in stature, coming into focus and blaring its horn. What the hell's this problem? Just get out of his way, Jerry! It's a wonderful way to introduce the movie's villain, and it makes for a gloriously creepy opening scene. Number 6. The Hanging Munchkin, The Wizard of Oz This movie is historic, and it just happens to contain one of the most ubiquitous legends in film history. No, I, I know we're not in Kansas. We're talking, of course, about the so-called Hanging Munchkin. As Dorothy and her ragtag group head towards Emerald City, you can supposedly see a munchkin hanging from a tree. Legend says that an actor had committed suicide during wow. filming, and his hanging corpse had accidentally made its way into the movie. We're out to save the wizard, the wonderful wow. wizard of Oz. You guys In see actuality, it? the corpse is just a big bird that was borrowed from the Los Angeles Zoo and allowed to roam the set to give it a more authentic appearance. Regardless of the truth, there's no denying the staying power and inherent creepiness of the suicidal munchkin legend. Number 5. The Demon's Face, The Exorcist oh. The Exorcist is widely heralded as the scariest movie of all time, yet it isn't really about the exorcism itself. That's Greek that they're talking, and it's really cool that those scenes were never subtitled, but I always knew exactly what It's more about Father Damien Karras' crisis of faith and the deep feelings of guilt that he harbors regarding his mother's death. In one of Karis's creepy dreams, he tries waving to his deceased mother as she emerges from the subway. Right before Karis runs towards her, the screen very briefly flashes with the ghastly white face of the demon. It's incredibly subtle, and it makes viewers question if they even saw anything in the first place. This was fully intentional by director William Friedkin. We may ask what is relevant. Anything beyond that is dangerous. He's a liar. The demon is a liar. He will like to confuse us. But he will also mix lies with the truth to attack us. Number 4. The Doll, Blue Velvet Dennis Hopper gives one of the finest performances of his storied career in David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Oh, mommy. 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 He plays Frank Booth, an extremely violent and unhinged criminal who keeps Dorothy Valen's family hostage so he can use her as a sex slave. He keeps them confined in the apartment belonging to a criminal associate named Ben. Ben's apartment contains a creepy doll with a white face, black eyes, and women's clothes. Oh, Frank. This is a fine surprise you brought your friends. I'm surprised.
Like the upside-down paintings in Lynch's Lost Highway, this doll is given no explanation and is never acknowledged within the context of the movie. It's just another one of Lynch's creepy and mysterious details that lends the movie a disturbing atmosphere. Blue velvet through my Number three, Annie on the ceiling. Hereditary. Oh, I, I, I Horror movies this. have different ways this of scaring the their audience, creepiest and Hereditary the uses movie. just about all of them. Watch there this. are upfront, in-your-face scares, there are grotesque images, and there are scenes requiring audience perception. This After Annie inadvertently burns Steve scene. alive and gets possessed, Peter wakes up in the darkened and eerily Look silent up in the house. Corner, in the dark As the camera corner, cuts to a long the... shot of his bedroom, viewers can spot Annie hovering in the corner of the ceiling and staring at Peter. Then you see her crawling out. That's freaking creepy. What's great about this sequence is that it doesn't draw attention to Annie's presence. The audience is simply left to spot her on their own. And when they do, they are given the scare of a lifetime. You see her again right there? Number two, the falling satellite, Cloverfield. This is the mother of all background details, so subdued and indistinguishable that we wonder how anyone even spotted it at all. The movie ends with old footage of Rob and Beth filming themselves at a carnival. What do you want to say? What do you want to say? Last thing to begin. I had a good day. It seems like a bittersweet ending, reminding viewers of happier times. But there's another reason behind its inclusion. If you look very closely, and we mean very closely, you can see a satellite falling from the sky and crashing into the ocean. Yeah, all right, all right, we're almost on the same. We got like three seconds left. This is a satellite called Chimpanz 3, and it was included as a reference to the movie's viral marketing campaign. However, others posit that it could be the monster itself arriving from space, the escape pod from the Cloverfield Paradox, or even a fragment of the Shepherd. Can't wait to see you. She's coming back. Before we continue, be sure to subscribe to our channel and ring the bell to get notified about our latest videos. You have the option to be notified for occasional videos or all of them. If you're on your phone, make sure you go into your settings and switch on notifications. Number one, the librarian, it. Most people know it for Pennywise's abrasive and confrontational method of horror. This isn't real enough for you, Billy. I'm not real enough for you. Holy shit. It wasn't real enough for Georgie. <laughs> but there's one scene in the movie that takes a far more subdued approach, and it's arguably scarier than anything Pennywise could have concocted. While Ben is reading about Derry's past in the library, the elder librarian can be seen in the background turning towards Ben and staring at him with a deeply unsettling grin. I didn't pick that up. She remains out of focus the whole time, and the movie never highlights her disconcerting behavior. It's an ingenious little detail that shows the evil permeating throughout Derry, and proves that no one is ever safe, even when they think they are. Now that's how you do horror. Amen to that. So what do you guys think, that librarian... 
is actually Pennywise. Could be. He is a shapeshifter. But, you know, his uh, shape of choice is to be a clown. What better shape to pick if you want to definitely freak people out. And if uh, you're targeting children in particular. So, anyway. Uh, I like that. That was good. Uh, that, first, that first one, I saw... I saw a lot of stuff in there that I never picked up on before, which was kind of cool. Uh, that librarian and it at the end, that was definitely uh, one of them. So very, very creepy stuff. Very creepy stuff. Uh, I want to thank you guys so much for joining me tonight. It's been a treat and pleasure as always. If you want more information about our show, please visit us on the web at deadtalklive.com. Visit our brand new news site where I showed you the article that I wrote, deadtalknews.com. You guys are amazing. Don't forget this coming Tuesday, we have special guest Sarah Paxton, who has appeared on The House on the Left, star of The Innkeepers. She will be our special guest this coming Tuesday, January 26th, right here on Dead Talk Live. I want everyone to have a safe night. I'll be back on the air with you again tomorrow on time. Hopefully no delays tomorrow. My apologies again for starting late today. So until tomorrow night, guys, remember, stay walking. <laughs>